Amen. Luke 2.52, speaking of Jesus' development and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. This, I believe, will be a two-part series uh, in parenting. The first will be focused on raising children kind of up to the adolescent years. And next week, Lord willing, uh, parenting teenagers. That could be like a 25-week series, right? I appreciate Brother Drury's excellent message last Wednesday night. I listened to that on Ephesians 5 on parenting and uh, all of our messages because we deal with it. You can applaud that. Thank you, Brother Drury. Great work. Amen. Um, There's overlap because there are so many passages that deal with parenting. So there'll be a little bit of that tonight. You may be seated. I want to speak to you about strategy for raising children. Amen. Well, there is a purpose in parenting uh, that's found in Malachi 2.15 when the Lord spoke about divorce and how God hates divorce. But he, he spoke about husbands and wives. He made you one with your wife and body and spirit. You're his. And what does he want? He wants godly children from your union. He wants godly parents to nurture, to raise up godly children. That was the goal. And we know that parents have a scriptural obligation to train up children in the way that they should go. You may look at that verse, Proverbs 22, 6. Brother Drew read it last week. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. I've studied this verse many times through the years, Some people say it may be conformable to his way. You try to understand the nature of the child, but in the way that he should go. That doesn't just mean that you bring them to church on Sunday and make sure they get a good Sunday school lesson, that you go to church, but this training process every day of who you are and what you do in the home. We are, according to Ephesians 6, and this is what Brother Jury focused on last week. I'm gonna read through this again. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live all long on the earth. And you fathers, provoke not your children to anger, but to wrath rather, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, in the training of the Lord. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God is one Lord. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thine soul, with all thine might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. So if you're going to parent children, that's where this verse will go. You have to know who God is, love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if you love God with your whole being, then your children are going to see your faith lived out. It's not just going to be lip service or church attendance. It's going to be who you are. And then he says, if it's in you, if you know who I am, and if a love for me is in you, you love me with your whole being, then the words that are in your heart, verse seven, teach them diligently unto thy children. A teaching is somewhat formal, right? So you teach them. There has to be a teaching moment. It's impossible for a church to try to compensate for a lack of godliness six days a week 
by an hour and a half in a Sunday school classroom or a chip service or a Wednesday night that we try to do our best. But when a church and a home cooperate, a tremendous amount of good can be done in the life of a child. Teach them diligently unto thy children, and thou shalt talk of them. So this is going to be common everyday talk, not a formal lesson, not just a drill sergeant message, but you're going to talk about it when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Recently, when I was teaching about that valley of craftsmen, about your legacy, I thought a lot about religion as culture. I didn't really have time to get into this on that Sunday, nor will I tonight. But the Jewish religion was more than synagogue on Saturday. It was a way of life. It was who they were. It was a nation and a religion. It was all of their life together. And, and by and large, they've maintained that culture through the centuries because it was more than just something that happened on a rare occasion, on a weekly basis. Talk about it all the time. Verse 8. Bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontless between thine eyes. Thou shalt write them on thy posts of thy house and on thy gates. That's the posters that are going to be on your kids' walls. will be the commandments and loving God and something that reminds them of the Lord more than a sports figure, a movie star, or a singer, a musician. Your God is, God is going to be everywhere in their life. Amen. There are a lot of consequences for neglecting the spiritual education of our children. I was thinking about what Psalm 78 said about people whose hearts were not right with God. He said they were still stubborn and rebellion generation. They did not have a heart that was set right with God. Their spirit was not steadfast with God. And then there's this verse. It's not on the screens, but Psalm 78, 9. The children of Ephraim, the men of Ephraim, being armed and carrying bows, turned back in the day of battle. They had everything they needed to be successful except a courageous heart. Something was missing on the inside, although they had all the equipment on the outside. Psalm 78.10, they kept not the covenant of God and refused to walk in his law. So we cannot just give lip service to religion. We can't just put carnal weapons in the hands of our kids. We've got to get faith in their hearts. We've got to bring them up to love the Lord by loving the Lord ourselves and what flows out of us will affect them. This is later in my notes, but they say when a person preaches, they're seen, they are heard, and their spirit is felt. It's the ethos, the logos, the pathos. So when a parent says something to their children, if it is not in their heart, it comes through. If I'm just giving a talk tonight and it's not a conviction of my soul, that bleeds through. If I say, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, but don't really believe it, it bleeds through. What you believe, what you live as a conviction comes through, amen? And it affects your children. So we have to give our kids more than an education, mental growth, more than nutrition, physical health, more than social graces and skills, physical skills, sports and work and talents. 
Amen? We've got to give them the equipment of the heart that helps them love God to be a success in life. Training must build character so our children do not turn back in the day of battle. Amen. So I want to go through this development of Jesus Christ and then give some, uh, some hopefully some help in training up smaller children. Uh, by the way, I'm not an expert. I am a parent and a grandparent. I used to be an expert, but then I became a parent. Luke 2.52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. There are four things here. Now, first of all, I want to say that he increased. He was God in flesh, but as a man, there was the development of him and these four areas that Luke 2.52 talks about. He was a boy that grew into a man. And maturing is the maturation process is not automatic. It needs assistance. There has to be some input from parents. When Jesus is in the temple at age 12, he was sound in doctrine. He just became crowd age and he confounded theologians in the temple. Amen. Learning to grow should be a lifelong pursuit. And I know that for kids, diet and rest are really important. So their physical growth is not stunted. But attitudes and the tone of a home is also important so that there can be spiritual, emotional, mental health that is not stunted as well. Amen. This is where it's in my notes about when you preach, you are seen, you're heard, your spirit is felt. I credit my wife for setting the tone of our home. It was a home of peace. She's not frantic, frazzled, or exasperated in general. I'm not saying that a husband and three boys never made her feel that way. One of our sisters-in-law who stayed with us for a day or two has come, you know, as they pass through town, just said to, to my wife and me, your home has such peace in that. Your home is so peaceful. But I say that is because of my wife who, according to the scriptures, guided our home and created an atmosphere of peace there. Amen. In our lives, there should never be a time when we quit learning and growing. And I'm focusing now on this idea that Jesus increased in wisdom, stature, favor with God and man. He had a mother who pondered and prayed, who knew the Bible. If you hear her song of praise, that is sometimes called the Magnificat of Mary. Mary knew the Bible, and his stepfather Joseph certainly would have also. His textbook would have been the Old Testament, and he would have learned it primarily at home. He increased in wisdom, stature, favor with God and man. So let's talk about wisdom first. Luke 2.52, you'll see it every time we come to one of these four ideas. Jesus grew intellectually. As I mentioned, the Old Testament was his main textbook for life. The word of God was in his school and his home was a humble home that included the teaching of the word of God. Little boys and girls learned the Bible in their homes. Now I recognize we have homeschools, private schools, public schools, 
And I recognize that in the public school system, the Bible has been taken out. So you parents who have children in the public school system need, first of all, to introduce the Bible more than some godly or biblically-based homeschool or Christian school curriculums. If your children go to a Christian school that is Trinitarian, then you may have to make sure that you counteract Trinitarian teaching that is given in those schools because they're hearing it from people they consider to be Christians, but that doctrine is erroneous. I'm not knocking that school. I'm just saying in the same way that a parent who has their children in public school has to address secular humanism and everything that goes with that If your children are in a non-apostolic Christian school, you need to do the same. The Bible has to be the primary textbook. Now, I want you to think about what the Lord told Joshua through Moses and Joshua 1 and 8. He said to Joshua, military leader, a general, this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night that thou mayest observe to do All that is written therein. And then the Lord said, and then when you have this word of God in your heart, when you meditate on it day and night, then you shall make your way prosperous and then you shall have good success. I believe that that scripture applies to every one of us, no matter what you do. If you're a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker, if you're a preacher, a plumber, a pediatrician, it doesn't matter. The Bible is the basis for a successful life at every level, not just financial success or academic success, but true success emotionally, spiritually, physically, in every way. The Bible is the core book. It's the textbook for a successful life. Jesus increased in wisdom. This has to do with the mental acuity of Jesus Christ. This is how he grew. Wisdom, knowledge, those theologians that he could answer. We know that his father taught him an honest trade to be a carpenter. Amen. So I recognize that some people emphasize education uh, above all else. And I think that it's good to emphasize education, but I just want to say to those of you who are anti-education that there is no honor in ignorance. We should try to encourage our children to get a great education, to be the very best they can in school, whatever that is. I don't think we should overdrive them to be a, whatever it may be, a straight A student in our context, my context, if that's not their intellectual ability, but certainly not below their very best. I believe that is a witness for them. I also want to make a plug for Bible reading, Bible memorization, and Bible quizzing. I've had the privilege of being involved in Bible quizzing when I worked in the youth division for six years and knowing hundreds and hundreds of Bible quizzers. Some of the brightest and most successful adults I know came up through Bible quizzing. So I thank God for that ministry. It is probably the best thing we do to challenge the brightest girls and boys among us and also those who can become brighter by Bible quizzing. Now, wisdom is more than just raw knowledge. Wisdom is seeing life from God's point of view. And Jesus grew in wisdom. So this is not just intellectual growth, 
but it is the ability to integrate knowledge in life. He saw life from God's point of view. Jesus increased in wisdom. Now, if you go in Luke 2, this is where this passage is. I just wanted to rehearse it with you. Remember, Jesus is missing for three full days. His parents find him in the temple, and he is there sitting in the midst of these doctors. That's what the King James says, theologians. And he was hearing them and asking them questions. He was listening, and he was asking a curious mind and a listening mind. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. Now, I know he was God in flesh, and of course, he wanted to be about his father's business, but the Bible says that he increased in wisdom. He learned and he grew, and our children should grow in wisdom, and it should be age-appropriate, but it should be continuous. The second thing is the Bible said in Luke 2.52 that Jesus increased in stature. Now, it's always fascinating to think of the mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, of him as an infant, as a toddler, a little boy. There's some apocryphal books that tell stories of Jesus supposedly taking a rock or whatever and making a bird fly away. All of that is untrue. We know from the Bible that he worked his first miracle at the age of 30 at the marriage of Cana of Galilee. But here the Bible said that he grew physically. Now, we would expect that, right? And I just want to say this to you parents, that you need to think about how to help your children grow physically to their full potential. Now, in our family, genetics probably got the best of us that, you know, we didn't grow as tall as your kids might have grown. But my mom who was mostly a stay-at-home mom and later babysat children, always made sure that we had really good meals. My dad never earned a lot of money, but my mom made sure we ate well. And I think it's important, you know, I, I want you to go to heaven, but I don't want you to go sooner than you should. So even though pastoring is more about spirit, I'm here talking about parenting, and part of that is Jesus grew physically. And it's a part of our nature. And it is also partly nurture that you make sure your kids have physical growth, nutrition, sleep, right? He grew in stature. But this also has to do with the maturation process. Jesus, somewhere around 12 years of age, and this is a lot of what I'll talk about next week, Lord willing, entered puberty, early adolescence, just like every other boy, and if he would have been a girl, like every girl does. But Jesus had a healthy understanding of his gender. I'm not going to talk about that a lot tonight, but his parents affirmed who he was, that he was a boy. I think they dressed him like a boy, treated him like a boy, let him be a little boy. They grew up around a dad who was a carpenter. I think it's important that there is a fitness component to physical growth. That boys and girls, should, we should try to raise them to be physically fit. For boys to be nurtured into godly men. For girls to be nurtured into godly women. 
exercise and play, strength and stamina for rigorous work. I've often had a great admiration for, for doctors, not just because they're smart, not just because they're disciplined in education, but because of their physical stamina to be able to go through a residency and maybe work 90 hours a week, just to be able to do that takes some stamina. So I think that's a part of Jesus increasing in stature. I think our children need to know that their body is a temple of the Holy Ghost, that they are to maintain their moral purity. Our, one of the goals of one of my brothers and I talked about this is that we wanted our kids to be somewhat balanced. They may not like everything, but we wanted to give them an opportunity to try different things. In our family, it might be different kinds of sports and might be hunting or fishing. It may be all kinds of other things, but to be balanced, not just to be one thing. And they're going to gravitate toward an area of interest, but we wanted them to have an opportunity. This may shocking, be shocking to you, but the first child in our home to get a musical instrument was Brother Joel. We bought him a guitar, but he's the only one in our family that doesn't play the guitar of our children. But he had a chance, right, to do that. I think there are some basic skills. There's some really interesting books. Now, I, 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 we raise boys, so if I, if I don't hit the nail on the head about you that are raising girls or raise girls, just forgive me. I'm trying to learn from daughters-in-law and granddaughters a little more about that so I'm more balanced, you know, as a person. But, but basically how to relate, how to grow up, how to conduct yourself, amen, manners and just growing up physiologically, balanced, multifaceted, some basic skills in life. I was going to say there's, some, there's a book or several books about skills that every man needs to know, guys need to know, and, and this may not be something you're interested in, but you know I know how to tie a, a hook on a line and I know how to do a lot of those kinds of things because my dad taught me that, but I think I also know how to do other things that I've learned in life, and I'm not here to talk about myself. I certainly have a lot of deficits, but to be as well-rounded as possible and then to gravitate to your areas of strength, amen. And I wanna just mention this. This is in my notes. It says a bonus point about wisdom and stature and balance. You know, all of us have a little bit of moodiness and some people more than others. I'm a pretty, you know, kind of normal guy. I don't get real high, get real low. I bring evangelists in that are a lot more powerful than me, that can get, you know, but I don't get that low either. I've seen people, that's their nature. What goes up must come down. But I've also seen people who never learn to address their moodiness. <laughs> and make excuses for the way they interact with people. It's all about them. Now, Mood swings are somewhat physiological. I understand a little bit about all that. But learning to deal with your moods. If your children growing up, if you always make an excuse for them throwing a fit or acting out. And there's a time and place to address this, right? 
But you need to help them deal with their moods so that they are fit for ministry and work and school and marriage and life and interactions. So I just want to throw in here conquering moodiness and instability. Amen. Hosea 7.8 talks about the people of Ephraim. Now this has to do with their spiritual worthlessness. They said Ephraim has mixed himself among the people. He is a cake not turned. Think of for us would be like a pancake. The New Living Translation as worthless as a half-baked cake. So not in an oven, but on a stove. Done on one side and doughy on the other. Gross, right? Who wants to eat that? But this was the imagery that the Lord had for Ephraim, that he is like a cake that wasn't flipped over. He's real nice on one side, but the other side of him is not good at all. Again, I recognize this is talking about the spiritual worthlessness of Ephraim. He mingled himself with, with pagan people, so he's got a little bit of religion, but then he, he's got a side of him that's not good at all. We want our children to grow up, to kind of be done on both sides, if I could say it like that. To not just be good secularly, but losers spiritually. We want them to be as balanced as possible. Jesus grew in stature. The next thing, Luke 2.52, he grew in favor with God. Now, isn't that important, right? Now, grow in favor with God. Now, I know you know all these things about growing in favor with God, but to me, that means from an early age, the nature of God, the thing in our family, you've heard us say before, how many gods are there one? What's his name? Jesus. What can he do? Anything. When I held our grandchildren, I think this was with our boys too, but it's been a while. I make sure I quote over them. Acts 2.38, Deuteronomy 6.4. I want them to know there's one God. I want them to know how to be saved. Not just the isolated Acts 2.38 verse, but the context of God in flesh saving us. I would like for them to have sincerity and truth, to have spirit and truth, the life of prayer and fasting, for them to be biblically literate. Biblically literate. Today, uh, Camden was telling me the story of Jonah and the whale. And he told me a little bit about Noah and the ark, just, in, just kind of randomly. I wasn't like, hey, Camden, I'm going to be teaching tonight. I need you to pretend like you know the Bible so I can go tell our people that you know, parents are, your parents and Sunday school teachers are teaching you the Bible. It was just pretty random, but it was just a little conversation with my grandson. You want your kids to know the stories of the Bible. So picture Bibles, story Bibles. Don't dive too deep when they're little kids. Bring them up according to their way and their season of life. I want our kids to grow up worshiping God. I thank the Lord that in our children's ministry that we have, you know, fun stuff and educational, but also the presence of God that they feel. I want our kids to be fully apostolic, oneness, 
Pentecostal through and through, understanding the message of separation from the world and biblical holiness, that we are separated to God. Amen? We want them to grow up in favor with God. Amen? So back to the beginning, you have to believe it and live it if you're going to teach it. they detect a duplicity in your life, they're certainly not going to turn out different than you. It's, it's a possibility. Not easy. Now, I, I have this in my notes, and I'm, I'm watching the clock, and I'm probably already in trouble with time. But I, I just wanted to say to everyone in our church who teaches... And everyone who supervises anyone who teaches. That anyone, the, the high, one of the highest values, your character is so important. But anyone who teaches in this church anywhere must believe the apostolic message. No matter where it is or when it is or what age level it is. Sound in doctrine. And if you do not believe what is taught and preached from this pulpit and everywhere else is taught, crosses campus and in homes, it will bleed through in the classroom. And in a kind way, we don't want you teaching our kids. If you don't believe what is taught and preached, and you may not be super familiar with the United Pentecostal Church, Articles of Faith, so when I say that, when someone comes and meets the district board for license, but the jury sits on that board now. I sat on that board for nine years. We want to know that they're fully apostolic. If someone is only a part of this church because they like this or that, whether it's programs or singing or children's ministry, but they don't love our doctrine, this is not the place for them. We will patiently give them time to fall in love with Jesus and truth but by the grace of God, as much as humanly we can know, we would never entrust anyone to teach anybody else that doesn't really believe this. Favor with God. It is imperative. It is essential. Amen. Remember the man in the Bible with a withered hand? He, he was whole everywhere except in his hand. Jesus healed him. But I don't want our kids to be, you know, smart, educated, successful on the job, all of that, and have a withered soul, have a withered spiritual life. That is not success. If they're the best athlete in the school, if they're the most successful child in school, the smartest kid, they graduate valedictorian. If they make the most money of anybody in the city, uh, but their soul is lost, that is not an acceptable loss. Amen. And we know you can have this and that. We don't have to make that choice of whether they're going to be saved or successful. They can be both if they will not compromise. Amen. Favor with men. Luke 2.52, last phrase. Jesus Christ increased with favor, in favor with man. Now, this is pretty cool because this is about relationships. I know he was despised and rejected of men. I know he was hated by hypocrites. 
But in general, Jesus was likable, lovable, a leprous man who was a social outcast walked up to him because he felt mercy. A woman taken in the act of adultery can receive forgiveness from him. I believe Jesus, according to the Bible and according to the stories, he had wonderful human relationships. He cared about his mother. Brother Drew, what a great job talking about taking care of aging parents. I wanted our boys to really hear that. You know, I'm not sure that they were all in here, but that was very good. Excellent. Tremendous. <laughs> I, I, I make notes in my notes, and media would attest to this. I felt the presence of God as I was reviewing this point about relationships. That we should be good with people. I know that some of you are shy. Some of you grew up in a dysfunctional home. But I believe we can be complete in Jesus Christ. Amen? We may not be, you know, the most gregarious person. We may not be, you know, like a social butterfly. But we can be genuinely interested in other people. And not so full of ourselves that we're not good with people. Someone said it like this. It is much better to be interested than interesting. Interested in other people. Not so much wanting other people to be interested in you. Jesus was good at relationships. And we want our kids to be good at relationships. I recently preached that six of the ten commandments given by God, are about human relationships. Jesus was good at that. Our children should be humble, yet confident. They should be modest, yet bold. And as I, here it is in my notes, to be interested in other people. You can't jerk a kid out of its nat his nature or her nature. That's what nurturing and teaching and talking and time is all about. I've shared this in times past, and I don't want to embarrass Ryan, but when, when Ryan was a little boy, he was the most shy kid I think I'd ever had. It dealt with, or not had, he was our first kid, child. But I was a youth pastor. I was a youth pastor, and I had some shy kids in our youth group. And my wife and I made it a practice to try to help. Tammy was one of those young girls, extremely shy. She died of Hodgkin's disease as a young adult. She came to general conference one year with a friend that she had won to the Lord. And she said, Brother and Sister Johns, I just want to tell you, because you helped me overcome my shyness, I was able to win my friend to the Lord. It was an amazing compliment, but it takes patience like that. So you have to know the nature of your child. But I understood that that shyness that Ryan had would have been a prison to him. And, and we could tell, you know, I could tell stories like we traveled a lot. He wouldn't want to go to a Sunday school class and different things. But, but gently, you encourage that in finding a place for him that he can serve in ministry where he loves other people. And I'm not trying to brag or neither am I trying to, you know, make Ryan feel uncomfortable. But my point is you have to know your child and help them be successful with people. 
Because what really matters in life is relationships. You can't take anything to heaven but people. And if our kids don't love other people, if they can't reach other people with the gospel, then what else are they going to do with their lives? Jesus increased in favor with man. Amen. Now, parenting is a very heavy responsibility. It starts when they're born and doesn't end until you or they pass away. The parenting burden and joys never end. But the better you do from the beginning, the easier your job will get as time goes on. So I believe that spending time with your children when they're young, having fun, quality time, and quantity time. If you're a parent, don't forget about the one-minute manager. Don't try to be the one-minute parent. Be the one-hour parent. Okay? Spending time... Having fun, teaching the Bible, building relationships has a compounding effect as time goes by, as they grow older. I don't have time to tell this whole story, but when, when Ryan was very little, he and I were playing in the living room, and I got a phone call that seemed urgent to the other person. It was not a real emergency, but it was in that moment for them. I paused to talk to them, but I hung up the phone. This was back in the days of landlines only that I will not let anybody rob the relationships that are primary in my life, God, my marriage, and my family. Now, we give ourselves to ministry a lot, but I want to make sure that my kids know their dad and they have time with me, and it has to start early. So this is, this is part of this lesson about early on. When a child is little, their greatest need is for character development. They're born with a strong self-will. Brother Drew quoted it. Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. Isaiah 53 spoke about we are all go to our own way. We are like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. Inherent in us, born with a sin nature, is that very early in our life, self-will will emerge and will be the king. There's an old, old book by Earl Jabay called The Kingdom of Self, that we are the kings of and queens of our own lives, and if parents will let you be that, you will be that. So a parent's job is to dethrone that king or queen pretty early on. Selfishness does not need to be taught. It's inherent. James Dobson wrote about the strong-willed child I think there is a revised version. When it came out, everybody thought that was their kid. He wrote it for them. You should educate yourself, by the way, with reading godly things. So, rebellion, rebellion is a very serious thing. And it can start early on. And if a parent does not address self-will early on, and self-will is allowed to reign then the child becomes the parent, the parent becomes the child, and the child becomes worthless because they are serving as the sovereign of their own life instead of the Lord Jesus Christ. Second Peter 2 talks about people who are self-willed. They're not afraid to speak against dignitaries. They, they are disrespectful people. So parents... 
need to try to develop this godly character. Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. And I think that character is taught by a cooperative effort between the parent, the child, and the Lord. We cannot do this without the guidance of God. But it is not just the Lord is going to speak to you every time through a gift of the Spirit. It is you reading the book of Proverbs, reading the Bible, reading good books that will help you as a parent to try to educate yourself and not just repeat the good and the bad that you learned growing up in the home in which you were raised. I've learned that children are eager for leadership. I got kind of this awareness as our boys got in their teenage years that when, you're, when the kids are little, you know, dad comes home, mom comes home. Oh, it's such a great event. When they got a little older, it wasn't such a great event, you know. So enjoy that great event when they're little. Admiration is shown by imitation. And while they're young, before they know any better, they are much like you, for good or bad. Hopefully for good, right? So when they're young, it's a scary thought that they want to be like you. Amen. My, if you knew my dad, I look a lot like my dad. My mannerisms, my gestures, probably a lot about me. If I did a side-by-side video of my dad and me at the same age through life, it would be much the same because if you admire someone, you're going to imitate them subconsciously. Now, children are characterized by a lot of irresponsibility. They leave stuff laying around like some adults do. They forget where they put stuff. But I learned from James Dobson many years ago to try to distinguish between childish irresponsibility and willful disobedience. That willful disobedience needs to be met with a strong, firm, authoritative hand. But you don't need to overly correct for a child being a kid. Doesn't know that when they put their coat on that their sleeve extends past their arm when they knock that heirloom vase off the coffee table. So you don't beat the daylights out of them ever, and especially because of that. But when there is defiance, someone needs to be in charge and it doesn't need to be the child. At times, the Board of Education must be applied to the seat of understanding. When, sorry for all the Ryan stories tonight, but he's the first kid you remember them better. I know Justin wishes I would tell a few Justin stories tonight. Brother Joel's out of town. Um, we, we had gotten a car, a new car, and it was a Toyota Corona liftback. Not a Corona, a car. Toyota Corona. And he had this little tractor, and he, as far as he could reach, he drove it up the hood of our car. And I was kind of happy about that car, you know. <clears throat> and I was pretty mad about him driving that tractor up the hood. And I was more upset about the damage done to the car than I was about what he did. And all I have to say, I probably could have done a little better in the way I reacted. And I learned from Brother Kraft, and I think I've gotten better as I've gotten older, that things don't really matter. I don't like anybody intentionally breaking things. I don't like intentionally wasting money. But some things happen that are just irresponsibility. 
James Dobson tells a story of a family at a, at a basketball game and some church thing or whatever, and, and he told the child to not cross the line. And the little child walked across the line and stood around, turned around and looked back at his parent as if to say, what are you going to do about it? All I want to tell you right now is you need to do something about that right now. Not tomorrow, right now. When there's defiance, it is self-will. It is the essence of sin. We have turned everyone to our own way. And that must be addressed. In little children, I think you need to be the boss, and they're not. Now, I'm going to tell you about teenagers next week, and it's different. It starts changing because you want them eventually to be adults and not have to call you every time they're going to make a decision. But when they're little children, they need to learn how to obey immediately, how to follow instructions. They are not in charge. They want to be in charge. Stop on a dime. Obey. Now, I have a lot of scriptures in my notes right now about corporal correction. I'll just read the first. Proverbs 13, 24. He who spares the rod hates his son. But he who loves him disciplines him promptly. So there's a lot in that verse, right? According to the Bible, if you love your child, you will discipline them. It is not always about spanking, but it's not always about timeouts. I have one, two, three, four, five, six verses in my notes about corporal correction. Recently, I spoke about some of these verses in a message. All I'm going to say is that, oh, I'll say a lot, but God made us. He knows us. He knows what we need. And he knows a child early on needs appropriate corporal correction because the blueness of the wound cleanses the spirit. I believe that spanking should be measured. It should not be like a maniac. I believe the rod of correction makes more sense than flesh, how hard you have to spank to try to inflict the right amount of uh, pain to cause a broken spirit and regret to not want to do that again. I was such a great kid when I was growing up. I didn't get a lot of spankings. <laughs> but I remember one from my dad, and I remember telling myself as a child, I don't want that to ever happen again. I, I clearly remember after my dad spanked me with the belt that I did want, not want my dad to spank me again. Dobson says after about two years of age, I don't think you spank a little infant. Parents have to figure this out with their children. It should be appropriate. We don't shake our children. We don't abuse them. When I read stories in the news of kids that have been beaten and, you know, that shaken infant, that is, nope, there's no place for that in the church for physical abuse. It does not belong at all in any form. Nor should husbands do that to their wives, nor should wives do that to their husbands. You try to raise them according to their nature, not yours. And if you've been affected by a non-biblical view, you need to get back to the Bible, put the Bible first, 
Every time you hear anything about anything in life, an idea, philosophy, you should hold that up to the Bible. Don't interpret the Bible in the light of some culture, some psychologist, some psychiatrist. There's a lot of wonderful things that men and women learn in life. But if it contradicts the Bible, it is wrong. It's destroying our culture because it's wrong. Okay. So, when you spank, you should demonstrate love, not anger. Show them love, hug them, hold them, pray for them. The point is to be strong and have loving discipline. And parents, even if you don't agree, mom and dad, I'm talking about now, in homes where there is a mom and dad, I know that's not every home. You may not agree with the way your husband or wife discipline in that particular instance, but more damage is done by parents disagreeing than the discipline that was rendered to the child. And I'll throw this in. More damage is done to your child when you disagree with the church when we're operating by the Bible than thinking that you're smarter than the pastor, which you probably are, but you're not smarter than the Bible. Parents, be together. Be unified and the discipline of your children. Amen. Scrolling through my notes. Now, my, my mom was a pretty strong lady, good lady, my dad too. But parents somehow think that if they yell, that they get their kids to act. Again, James Dobson, he's a lot of amazing things. He does a continuum about anger action. What happens is a parent gets more and more frustrated and angry. Finally, when they get mad enough, then they do something about it. And the child responds because you took action. Well, the parent, we're not that smart, and we think it was the emotion that got the response. But it wasn't the emotion, it's the action. So if you can keep your cool, and take action when it is needed. I'm not saying always that's a spanking. But whatever that action is, don't let your emotions get out of control. Now, we're not perfect. And you're going to get emotional as a parent. You're going to get upset. But try to keep your emotion in check. When you get angry, you typically lose. When you lose control, you lose. And so, you should take action and not freak out. Is that a good word phrase to say? Not lose, not lose control because that does not help. And I believe that this obedient response of your kids, you should be considerate of them. If it's mealtime, bath time, church time, bedtime, give your kids a little time to respond. They're in the middle of a game. They're in the middle of something going on. And all of a sudden, just like, bam, like the rapture in the twinkling of an eye, you're going to have them stop and they're going to be in the bathtub and bed at the table. You need to, you need to, that's not probably the best time to be instant, you know, in what you're demanding of them. Maybe give them a little warning. Give them some time to get ready for that. Set a timer. You've got five more minutes. And I know they're always going to be in the middle of something. 
We were never ready to come in from playing outside to eat dinner. Never, ever. And so you've got to draw a line, but be considered about that so it doesn't seem rigid and harsh. But at the same time, you know, don't let it be a negotiating tool for your child. Now, in my notes for many years, I've taught this session here in 2005, but I've fully revised it quite a bit. And I've taught it in marriage things across the country, 2016 in the Colorado district. And, and I've talked in about, you know, this, this thing about counting. And this is not doctrinal. Now, this is my opinion, somewhat based, I think, on a principle that if I say you've got three, one, two, three, one, one and a half, two, two and a half, three, two and a quarter, you know, um, that, that I, I was trying to find where that is, and I found more websites against that than for it. So I'm not saying this is a doctrine, but, but here's what I do want to say. When is it that you want your child to respond? Now or later? So I think it's better to just say, when I tell you to pick up your toys, that means right now. And delayed obedience is disobedience. And if a child is now negotiating with the parent, then I don't necessarily think that's healthy. Now the parent is the one who's having to acquiesce to the little child. I'm not talking about your 15-year-old, talking about your little kid. And you should not use it and be frustrating. So maybe there's some ways that that works for you. I'm not telling you to not do it. But I don't think he would say, do not run out in the street. One, two, three, or three, two, one. Come here. One, why would I even need to do that? Stop choking the dog. Three, two. I mean, there is a time for that, but maybe that's not that often. Okay. We want to instill values in our children and help them be godly.